Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard. That's why we do what we do on these podcast episodes. My name is Mitch Schultz, and I am your host, your fine host of these podcast episodes. And I'm also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. All right, this might come as a surprise to you because we do tend to assume that pastors are mature, have developed their faith, and the reason they're in ministry is because they have it all figured out doctrinally, spiritually. I mean, they are preaching the Word of God. They are shepherding other people. Uh, But from what we're going to hear today from an interview with a good friend of mine is that there are pastors, and he is one of them, who during his time of ministry actually doubted his faith and had to go through a journey of rebuilding that, revisiting what he believed, and also rebuilding that. Uh, His name is Julian Pace, and he wrote a book called Unanswered Questions, Discovering the Truth About Jesus. You will see that on my website. Uh, But a very challenging conversation we had today, and I I think an honest one that will allow you, if you are also going through something like this, to, to feel safe in the conversation. Uh, Julian is a Christian pastor and author. He currently serves as pastor of Central Alliance Church in Mount Airy. He's also the president of Risen Savior Ministries, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to evangelism and church renewal. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump into that conversation now and hear uh, this fascinating story of, uh, of dealing with unanswered questions and discovering the truth about Jesus. Okay, I have a, uh, a new good friend uh, visiting on Zoom here, Julian Pace. You're only about 20 miles from me. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm doing great today. Excited to be on the program, Mitch. Awesome. And I've got another first. I've got another good friend of mine that's visiting, and he wanted to sit in on the podcast. So we're going to... Bill, you want to say hi real quick? Hey, good to see you, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> good, okay. Good Nobody well, else Bill. could see you though, Bill. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had, I had a friend call and say, I'm, I'm going to be in town. I said, well, I'm doing a podcast right around that time. He goes, I'll sit in on it. Didn't mm-hmm. ask for permission, just did. So <laughs> here we are. Very yeah. Happy. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Julian, you wrote a book uh, that mm-hmm. I found very fascinating and it's, uh, it's entitled Coming to Faith, Unanswered Questions. So we're going to be talking about that book. But first of all, just introduce yourself. Tell us, you know, briefly what you do, your family. And I always like to ask the question, what is most passionate to those that I interview? What drives you? Well, I appreciate you having me on the program, Mitch, and thank you for letting me introduce myself to your audience. Uh, My name is Julian Pace, and I serve as the senior pastor of Central Alliance Church in Mount Airy, Georgia. I'm married to the lovely Allison. We've been married 10 years now, and we have two beautiful children, Gabriella and Josiah. They are seven years old and eight years old, and so they they keep me busy. Um, I'm also pursuing a doctorate in theology with a focus in historical theology from Evangelical Seminary. And so uh, being a husband, being a father, being a pastor— um, also having an evangelistic ministry, Risen Savior Ministries. Um, I stay pretty tired, but I am glad and happy to be tired for the Lord. Um, yeah, well, I was going to say, all doing all that, that gives you plenty of time to work on your, your PhD, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 um, 
I, I've had to work very hard at, at time management. I've yeah, not always been yeah. good at it. Well, you'll look back and say it's it's good I did that when I was that. younger, you know, and uh, and got that out of the way. Uh, that's, but that, well, that's that's, that's, that's wonderful. Right. That's something I'm trying to do is try and get it out mm-hmm. while I'm try and get it done whenever I'm I'm still fairly young but yeah uh, well there's also the benefit of of having you know the you you draw from you know the the things you're learning from that will benefit you sure. uh, as you have a lot of ministry life ahead of you uh, rather than doing this late in life and it's like I wish I'd done this 40 years ago and it would have helped me so yeah. well great Absolutely. so yeah what what drives you well for me what drives me is um very much what I learned uh, in the process of writing this book and the crisis of faith that brought about this book, what really drives me is the truth that human beings, that we as people, we're only truly fulfilled when we have an authentic and fulfilling relationship Mm -hmm. with God who has revealed himself to us through his Mm -hmm. son, Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. Um, I am passionate about Mm -hmm. connecting people to God. I am passionate about making disciples. And in particular, I feel a special calling to those who are asking hard questions, um, Mm -hmm. deep questions about things like, is there a God? Is there right and wrong? Is Jesus really who he says he is? I've wrestled with these questions. I've wrestled with doubt in my life. And I, I feel especially called to, to help those people since I've, I've mm-hmm. wrestled with these same questions, yeah. but well, that's I'm a, just utterly passionate about making disciples, Mitch. Yeah. Really well, am. great, great segue to why you wrote the book. And, and incidentally, uh, I remember years ago when I was on a speaking tour as a, as a, a missionary with the Alliance, there's another guy that traveled with me all the time. And I was always so impressed with him because, because he quoted Augustine, and mm-hmm. then later I found out it was the first line from his book, Confessions, which is, we are forever restless until we find our rest in thee. And uh, and that touches on what, what you said. But I always laughed about that because I thought he was just a real expert in Augustine, but it was just, he just read the first line from a book and, and <laughs> managed to use that effectively. But it's a great so, line. It, it, it is, really is. It is. Yes. Yeah. And the the image of, of Christ. Uh, you know, in John four with a woman at the well, uh, the living water, you know, as you, you were presenting that beautiful picture of, uh, you know, we're only satisfied in, in a relationship with Christ and through the gospel. Uh, so yeah, it took you uh, some time to get there. And that's what your book is about. Um, unanswered questions, discovering the truth about Jesus. Uh, when I interview people that write a book, I will often ask, uh, you know, why did you write this and what did you hope uh, comes from writing this book? Well, I, I wrote this question, or excuse me, I wrote this book after I had a, a pretty serious, um, pretty emotionally, pretty intellectually grueling crisis of faith that went on for about a year. I was raised in the church. I was raised in a solid Christian home. Um, but whenever I uh, became a staff pastor at a church, and I was preparing for ordination, I began to really doubt my faith. I began to really doubt the truth of the Christian faith. And I began to doubt whether there was a God, whether there were any good reasons to believe in Jesus. And I went through a crisis of faith for about a year, asking these hard questions and researching these hard questions. 
And whenever I was done with that, I was surprised that my faith had actually grown far deeper, Mm -hmm. far more Mm -hmm. mature. And I was actually far more passionate about ministry and discipling others than even before my crisis of faith took place. And so I I thought that maybe writing down my story might be therapeutic for me to um, jot down what had taken place in my life, what God had done in my life. And I felt that my story might be helpful to fellow Christians who are doubting their faith, who are wondering, are there good reasons for me to believe um, in God? Are there good reasons for me to believe in Jesus Christ? I thought maybe my story would be helpful to mm-hmm. them. And, and I also thought that um, sincere seekers, um, maybe people who are not believers yet, who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord yet, I thought they might find my journey interesting as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought they might mm-hmm. find some of the content that I learned, some of the truth that I learned. I thought they might find it helpful in their yeah, spiritual journey yeah. as well. So you, you went through this season that one year as a pastor. Yes. How common is that? Or, or maybe we don't know because there might be pastors that go through this and they don't have the courage to, you know, to share that. Um, and, and well, let me ask you this. Did you, as you were going through that, did you let those who, who you were close to even worked with that you were going through this? Or do you find that possibly risky if you had? Well, I'd like to think that I have grown emotionally and mm-hmm. mentally and spiritually as a person over the last 10 years. Um, I'm, I'm historically a pretty private person. I, I love people. I'm, I can be very extroverted and I love being around others. And um, I, I strive to be an authentic person, but I, I'm also a very, very private person. And for me, whenever I was going through this crisis of faith, I was, I was very scared to share what I was going through. I think understandably, yes. And, and, and I, I, I was scared because I, some of it was probably just, just good old fashioned pride. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, well, what will people think of me? You know, people uh, perceive of me as maybe a, a spiritual leader, as a pastor. And what will people think of me if they realize that I'm doubting some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, but there was also concern well, how will this affect the faith of those around me? How is this going to affect the faith of my parishioners? Is this going to be poisonous to their mm-hmm. faith? And as I said, this was a, a difficult, grueling process. And Oh, froze up. This happens in podcasts. Bill. On to other people. And to, I, I would say that knew about this real intimately was my wife, Allison, Mm -hmm. and to to a lesser extent, one of my good mentors, Tony Branham, he was, Mm -hmm. um, he was privy to some of this, but not, not so much in, not not in the same amount of detail as Allison was. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a, it's a difficult position to be in because you, particularly when you're already in ministry, you need people around you that you can trust to help you process that because that's critical. I mean, you you might have even had a sense that, hey, this could go either way, right? Was, was that was there that reality that I could end up losing my faith or walking away from it during this time? Oh yes, there were several times where I very, very seriously um, considered walking away from the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some 
really low points of my spiritual journey where I would come in from my office after listening to Muslim apologists all day and thinking, well, maybe the evidence for Islam is is better than the evidence for Christianity. Mm-hmm. And or maybe after listening to debates between atheists and Christians all day, I wondered, well, maybe the atheists have got it right. And there would be times where I would just come home physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted. And I, I very seriously contemplating, uh, very seriously contemplated uh, abandoning the Christian faith. And so I, 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 I didn't feel the church that I was serving in at the time. I, I just didn't feel comfortable sharing uh, the, those, those doubts. That environment was not a place that was all that open to hard questions. Yeah. Well, I can see two. I can see two reasonable responses. One being that, hey, you're a spiritual leader here. You're doubting your faith, and we're a bit reluctant to have you, you know, shepherd others. But then there's that other part, like, hey, you're young. This is healthy. Let's walk with you. And uh, and finding. I mean, what what I'm what I'm right now in my heart feeling. Uh, some real empathy for is for the likelihood that there are people in ministry who are going through this and don't have the courage or trust to share this because they could jeopardize what they're doing. Yeah. And, I, you know, to kind of get back to, you know, a question you asked earlier, do you think a lot of pastors struggle with this? I, I would say just anecdotally, I think, I think, um, I think probably a lot of pastors do. Mm. Um, ministry is, is, is difficult. Ministry is challenging. Ministry can oftentimes be physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausting. And, and while pastors may not necessarily doubt the core doctrines of the faith, though I think some definitely do, um, I think many pastors doubt their effectiveness. I think sometimes pastors doubt um, their, their, their abilities and their, their, their talents and their, um, their adequacy and their call to ministry. I, I, I believe that a lot of pastors wrestle with mm-hmm. doubts, but I, I, I fear that maybe sometimes in the, in the church, we have not always been a, a soft place for people to land who are having doubts and who are having struggles. We, we sort of want everybody to smile and be perfect. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In 2013, I was in Augusta, Georgia to help replant a church. So I was a church planter. And I remember I was sent to a church planting seminar. And uh, during a Q&A at the end of it, I raised my hand. And I said, I, I don't think I'm the right guy to be doing this. I don't think I'm a church planter. Right. And the guy did not know how to answer that. And yeah. I needed at that moment for someone to say, hey, let's talk or maybe you know, let's meet after the this meeting and and discuss that. So, so yeah, I think I think uh, again, if this is the reality with some who are listening to us, um, that you know, maybe talk to us, get in touch with us, and we'll help guide you through that. I I think because again, since you've get, you've gone through this, you've got a lot of credibility to uh, to speak into that. Um, all right, let's dive into the book. I appreciate all that you've shared. That's that's very uh, it's it's personal. It's uh, again, thank God that you came out of this the way you did because we know of enough stories where you know the the direction is is a different direction. Right. Um, but let's talk about the content of the book a little bit, which is again about your journey. Uh, what would you say are the main pieces of of the book? 
uh, if you were to kind of give like an overview, the main banner headlines? Well, I would say that the book is is basically um, broken down into two broad sections. I, I open up the book with a uh, with a section where I, I talk about how I entered into my crisis of faith, and I sort of set up the uh, the the structure of the book. And in the book, I I, I sort of uh, answer two questions. I, I say. Uh, I ask the question, are there any good reasons to believe in God? And I present an argument for God's existence um, that has been expounded by people like C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig, and others, an argument called the moral argument for God's existence. And I show how the existence of moral values, the existence of what I call objective moral truths, they point to the reality of a creator God. Mm -hmm. And then in the second half of the book, I talk about the evidence for the resurrection. So I, I, I answer the in the first part of the book why we have good reasons for believing in God. And in the second part of the book, I talk about how we can know that God has revealed himself to us through Jesus of Nazareth. And the way we know that God has revealed himself to us through Jesus is because there's very good historical evidence to support mm -hmm his resurrection. And then I close the book with how um, learning this information, learning this truth has positively affected my walk mm -hmm. with God. Okay. And it's a booklet. It's a, it's, it's not a long book. It's, it's an easy read. About 150 uh, pages. 150 pages. That's, that is not overwhelming. Um, there's, yeah, there's so many things I want to jump into. You've touched on some of them, but let's, you, you talk about universal moral laws and in a good portion of that what do you mean by that and and how did you wrestle through that where did you land yes so um universal moral laws i, I actually prefer the terminology um objective moral truths my my editor um uh, thank the lord for editors and i mean that with all sinc uh, sincerity um, my editor encouraged me to spice up my writing and use mm -hmm. um, different terminology to address the same thing. I, I like objective moral truths better. Mm -hmm. and, and basically what I'm talking about there is there are certain perceptible moral realities that are obvious to all people, regardless of our cultural context. C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit in his book mere Christianity. And basically what he talks about is he says, even though every human culture uh, may have a little bit different take on what is right and wrong, there's no such thing as a human culture where they don't recognize the difference between right and wrong. And virtually all human cultures value certain things like courage and honesty and righteousness and goodness in some form or another. And so Objective moral truths, what I'm getting at there is that there are certain moral realities, moral values that are perceptible to all people across all times and across all cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very broad. So that that alone did not lead you to reaffirm, you know, the veracity of Christ, your your devotion to him. Other things then we'll we'll look at that. Um right. But but how but how is that important to get past that? Was that 
of the first hurdle for you to get past? And, and if so, how? Well, it, it wasn't a hurdle. It was actually, it, it was actually, I, I found that fascinating. Mm-hmm. The, the, the moral argument in its, in its simplest form says that um, every culture recognizes that there are certain objective moral truths. All people recognize that there are objective moral truths, that there's a difference between right and wrong. And the question we are then presented with is, what are the best explanation Mm -hmm. of these objective moral truths? Human beings are hopelessly moral, uh, sometimes even in spite of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, what is the best explanation of human moral experience? And so for me, I, I found this intriguing that Virtually every human being recognizes that there's a difference between right and wrong. Yeah, and, yeah, it's not it's not something that's imported, you know, like missionaries right. importing that. Right. Every culture, you you use the term more. Uh, everyone has a moral compass, even internally. Yeah. Everybody has a moral compass, and, and that and that moral compass may be somewhat broken. It may be flawed. It may be distorted. But nevertheless, human beings sometimes, even in spite of ourselves. We recognize a difference between right mm-hmm. and wrong, good and bad. And the question is, what is the best explanation of this? And that that really fascinated me. And what I came to discover is that I think the best explanation, and I think the best explanation by far is that God is the originator yeah. of human moral experience. Yeah, at least people to ask the question, yeah, yeah. What, what's the origin of this? Yeah, my, my parents worked in a tribe in Papua, never mm-hmm. had had any contact with the outside world until the 50s mid 50s or so and they were there around you know almost 40 years and and my dad shared recently that they they had something very similar to the 10 commandments that wow. they 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 lived by you know and of course you had people that disobeyed it you had consequences if you didn't uh, and that was always fascinating and so what missionaries do is they come in and, and answer that big question you know, um, so that, that was always fascinating. Uh, you talk about moral nihilism or nihilism, I guess it's nihilism, right? I've heard it pronounced both ways. Good. I'm off. I usually pronounce it more moral nihilism. So we'll we'll say, how about if we say nihilism? So we (laughs) mind the two, uh, well, expand on that. What is that? And how important was that to wrestle through? Well, moral nihilism is the idea that these objective moral values don't really exist. Um, it it, it mm. pushes against the idea that there is a genuine difference between right and wrong. And so basically what the moral nihilist would say is that what we perceive as as right and wrong, uh, those things aren't really different. We just sort of think uh, th- that they're different. Uh, morality is more so a matter of preference um, rather than there being any real difference between uh, something being objectively good and something being objectively bad. And so what many moral nihilists would say is that um, evolutionary processes have sort of uh, programmed into human beings certain uh, moral beliefs, certain beliefs that are valuable to society that sort of keep mm-hmm. society from utterly collapsing. But these things aren't aren't really true, don't really exist in any real sense. 
Um, yeah, I bet those people things. still, they probably still discipline their kids, though. Oh, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and one of the things that I, you know, one of the things that I say in the book, and, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, is I don't think anybody can live consistently yeah. with the idea of, of, of moral, moral nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people like Richard Dawkins, people like Bertrand Russell, who have, who have basically said that, you know, the difference between right and wrong is mere preference. These are the same people that, um, particularly people like Richard Dawkins, that excoriate those um, who persecute others based on their religious beliefs, who persecute um, homosexuals, people in the LGBTQ plus community. So they, they have moral beliefs. And mm-hmm. so uh, I don't I don't know that anybody can really live consistently. Yeah. With the worldview of moral nihilism yeah. again that's why i say i think human beings are hopelessly moral even in spite of ourselves yeah yeah that's, i love that point yeah yeah and it's it's a it's a kind of fatalism too isn't it um uh, i you know to to believe that is like what benefit is that to you to to live that way or or to believe that um you yeah, you, you, you talk about worldview. yeah you talk about 9 11 being kind of an epicenter for you uh, wrestling between good and evil. Uh, so talk a little, uh, talk about that and then answer how you dealt with the problem of evil. Cause that, that was a question I was going to ask later, but I think it'd be appropriate to ask it here. Cause you do, you do spend a good bit of time or a little bit of time talking about that in your booklet. I think for me, Mitch, nine 11 happened when I was still, was still pretty young. And of course, you know, I knew that there was a difference between right or wrong. My parents had taught me the difference between right or wrong. I'd heard Mm -hmm. hundreds of sermons by that age, hundreds of Sunday school lessons that talked about the difference between right and wrong. But I I would like, I think I would say that 9-11 is really where evil became real to me, Mm. where I saw evil literally on my television screen, Mm -hmm. where I saw evil affecting um, my fellow Americans in a very real way. And perhaps the reason why this uh, this event touched me so deeply is my older brother, he had actually not too long before 9-11 had visited New York, had been at the World Trade Center. Um, he was up in New York. He was um, traveling with his high school choir and um, they actually got to sing at Carnegie Hall. It was a really amazing mm. experience for him. And uh, he actually shared with me how um, at the the bottom of the trade towers, there was a little grocery store. Where he actually went and bought donuts for breakfast one morning. Mm-hmm. And so what sort of made this so um, what made this experience so um, vivid for me, wh- why, why it really made me realize that evil was a real thing is I sort of thought about, well, what if my brother had been at the mm-hmm. trade towers when mm-hmm. this happened, you know? Um, he was there not all that long ago. What if he had been there? What if he had been killed? And I, I just thought about how the people that were in those buildings, they were, they were, they were innocent people. They weren't combatants. Yeah. They were just people going to work. They were just people living out their daily lives. And yet uh, some terrorists thought it was a good idea mm-hmm. to fly some airplanes into that. Um, and, yeah, that's the that's and a definition of those people. Yeah, so that's a was, definition just, of evil, isn't it? When people yeah. think it's a good thing to do something like that. That's that's so. Yeah. So it, it just 
it just brought evil alive for mm, me, Mitch, yeah. in a way that and for many I, I others, never, yeah, I, I had never experienced. I was I, to me what I was seeing on my television screen, realizing that someone had intentionally um, sought to kill those people by mm -hmm. flying airplanes into those buildings and and those people dying in such horrible, tragic ways. That that really mm -hmm. th that just made me realize the that that evil was a very real and present danger in our world yeah so how did how did you work how did you work through that and and uh if if i when i say that the existence of evil can it doesn't prove god obviously but it it certainly drives us to him to our need for him i i talk a lot about that with people that are you know stating that they disbelieve in god because look how evil the world is I was, well, well that's why i need a god that's why right. i depend on him you know because right. i need something good and holy and other uh but how, how did you process that well i'm glad you bring that up because you know we've been talking a little bit about the moral argument mitch and probably one of the strongest probably one of the strongest objections to the existence of God, to the moral argument that God is is all good and He is the originator of moral values, probably these one of the strongest, if not the strongest, objections to the existence of God and to the moral argument is is the problem of evil. Well, if there is a good, righteous, all powerful God, why is there so much evil? in this world why do things like 9-11 happen why are people raped why are children kidnapped why do people go hungry why does terrorism exist and for me the way i answer this question is the reason why there is evil is because god um, has given human beings free will god does not want a fleet of robots who have no choice but to worship and adore him God has given human beings a genuine choice in the matter as to whether they will love and serve him because God yeah. is interested in, in genuine love. And I think love is something that has to be freely given and freely received. And so it's, it's not God's fault uh, that there is so much evil in the world. It's, it's our fault that there's so much evil in the world. And I think the Bible gives us a pretty good explanation for that. We look in the first couple chapters of Genesis, it talks about the, the fall of humankind and how we're really responsible for all the evil in the world. And, and I'm with you on this, Mitch. I, I fear that if we say, okay, the problem of evil is so powerful that there cannot be a God, the problem of evil um, is such a successful objection to God's existence that there is no God, to me, that only makes the problem of evil mm -hmm totally worse yeah. uh, uh, unbelievably worse because then those people that were killed in the trade towers they have no hope of immortality mm -hmm. their life was mercilessly cut short their life was merely a tragedy um the the little child that dies young of cancer there is no hope beyond the grave that little child is just gone, snuffed out forever. Mm. Um, everyone you know and love will one day die, and there will be no record of, on, of them on this planet when the universe reaches its inevitable heat death. I, I fear that if we kick God out of the picture because of the problem of evil, we only make the problem of evil 
unbelievably and unbearably worse. Yeah, we, that, we, that's, need, we need a righteous God. We need yeah. a good God. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, prove God, but it certainly proves our need for Him. Yes, and and He's so. He's yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I I had to ask you this one. I'm not going to pronounce it right. You talk about the euthro dilemma. Euthyphro. The oh, euphorfro. Okay, what what in the heck is euphorfro? Euphorfro dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read a short section from a book that I cite in my book. Um, it's a book written by David Baggett and Jerry L. Walls. A book I, I I highly recommend to to your listeners. It's called "Good God: The Theistic Foundations of Morality." Very very good book. It was very helpful to me in my crisis of faith. Uh, Walls and Baggett write this. They say, quote, the Euthyphro dilemma arises in an early dialogue of Socrates entitled, appropriately enough, Euthyphro. Written by a student, Plato, the dialogue features Socrates questioning young Euthyphro about the true standard of morality. And as a devout polytheist, Euthyphro attempts to explicate the nature and authority of morality in terms of the loves and the hatreds of the gods. Since the Greek gods, by Euthyphro's own admission, could and likely dis could and likely did disagree about moral matters, Euthyphro is forced to say that morality is what all the gods agree on. If they all support a practice, it's an act of piety. If they all denounce a practice, it's an act of impiety, unquote. And that comes from um David Baggett and Jerry L. Wall's book, Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality. A slightly more modern packaging of the Euthyphro dilemma is either something is good simply because God wills it, or else God wills something simply because it is good. Hmm. And the, the idea behind this, the reason why this has been uh, such a thorny dilemma uh, to those of us as Christians who believe in a good God, is if we say that something is good simply because God wills it, it sort of makes God an arbitrary figure. Well, if, if something is good simply because God wills it, could God say that murder is wrong one day and then the next day condone mm. it? And, and if we say the opposite, that God wills something because it is good, the problem here is that it seems to say that there is some higher moral standard that God is subservient God, to. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as Christians, we definitely don't want to say that because mm -hmm. we want to say that God is a, a maximally great being, that there is nothing mm -hmm. higher than he, that nothing can rise higher than him and his authority. And I think that um, while this has been a, a rather thorny dilemma that Christians have faced over the centuries, I, I do believe that Christian philosophers have offered a good, um, explanation to this objection to the moral argument that, well, we don't need to choose either of these options. We can say that God just is the good. God is the originator of moral values, and and God, um, uh, again, is the source uh, uh, of goodness and righteousness and and the truth about the difference between right and wrong. Does does that make sense, Mitch? Yeah, I know that's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. I'll have to listen to it again and read okay. the book again. But but yeah, certainly it does. And I I think the key point that you're making there is that uh that there is an absolute 
uh, moral foundation that originates in God because He is God, because, and there's nothing other. And um, and and we have we have to. I mean, it, it would it would drive me crazy to yeah. have to question whether yeah. You know, the the thing that keeps me up at night is probably going a different direction. Is is how can God have always been? And if you just keep following that. But you have to you have to just accept that. Again, we're finite. Our ability to understand these things is very limited. And even these yes. questions on good and evil, I mean, in fact, everything we're talking about, there's an element of faith to that, which I I, I do want to this will be a good segue to talk about that. Um where where did you where did you land with all of this? How did you in the end come to a good place? What was what was that? And I know it probably wasn't a checklist of things because there is an element of faith to this. And at what point did you realize that there was a balance here between, you know, the the outcome of your research and realizing I gotta I gotta sit down on this chair because I trust it? Yeah, I I would say that for me, I don't know that I I don't know that I would picture it as balancing faith and reason um i don't know that i would i mm. would use that language to to me i feel that as christians it's not so much that we balance faith and reason it's that we put faith and reason in their proper place mm. i i understand faith as trusting in something in which we have good reason to trust yeah i love that i love that and tr faith is trusting in something in which we have good reason to trust. And to me, good. the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that God is worthy of my trust. That mm -hmm. God has revealed himself to me in the scriptures, in natural revelation, in the miraculous, in the record of history. God has not asked us to believe in him without evidence. God has asked mm. us to believe in him because he has revealed himself to us. And therefore, because he has revealed important things about himself, his essential moral character, that um, we can trust in his son, Jesus of Nazareth, for salvation because he died for our sins on the cross. He was buried and he rose again, and there's good evidence to support that. Um, that is a God who is worthy of our trust. Reason is a tool that God has given mm. us to help us understand his revelation, uh, to help us understand himself, and to help us understand the world uh, that he has created, the world that surrounds us. So reason is a tool. It's, it's not a perfect tool. Um, it is tainted by our wills and our sin. And so it's not a perfect tool, but it's a useful tool that reveals important things about God. Or but maybe I should say instead, it helps us understand important things about God. And uh, reason helps, I think, bring us to God, mm -hmm. um, bring us to the footsteps of God, or, or bring us to the feet of God so that we can... We can trust in him, but I believe that faith is trusting in something or, or someone 
whom we have good reasons for trusting yeah. in. Yeah, I love and, that. That's a, that's wonderful. I mean, it's almost like faith and reason are two sides of the same coin. And what I'm hearing you say is we have a reason to put our faith in Christ, in in God. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we have very good reasons for placing our faith in the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible has revealed himself yeah. to us yeah. in, in so many in so many ways. Now, here's the thing about faith. God has not revealed to us necessarily everything we would like to know. We may not know all of the details. We may not understand every aspect of who he is. You know, I believe that I am saved, that I possess eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Mm -hmm. Do I understand exactly how God the Father reached down and revivified, resurrected the body of Jesus? Do I understand the details of how the atonement works, how God actually took care of sin through the death of his son? I don't understand the details, but I don't need to understand the details. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know every aspect about God, yeah. every aspect of his character, every aspect of how he works to place my trust in him. Yeah. And that's where faith comes in. I trust yeah. him in the details. Yeah. I, I like, and the, the reason I'm asking that question is I've got someone very close to me who's started questioning their faith, started questioning everything. And I thought initially, I thought, well, if I gather all the evidence and can give enough evidence for every piece of his arguments, then uh, he'll say, thanks. That's what I needed. But then I eventually realized that that wasn't really the desire um, and whether it was an excuse to walk away from the faith uh, or, or just, you know, in the end, it's a sinful heart that man's heart is bent away from God. Uh, you know, when you were talking about our will, that God's given us a free will and not to get in a conversation about reform theology here, that could be another podcast. But R.C. Sproul says yes. that God God does give us a free will, and that will chooses to rebel against God. That is the original bent of that will. Uh, and that's why I'm asking about faith, because in the end, uh, as you as you affirmed, you're not going to have all the questions answered. That There yeah. is a point where I'm going to put my faith in this, even though I don't fully uh, understand it all. And, and maybe that's a gift. Again, faith is, I see faith as a gift that God gives us. And then um, some are at a, at a different uh, different place in that. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I would just say to that, just sort of following up on that, Mitch, I, I would say that we we can't have answers in this life to all of our questions. We will never have all of our questions answered. And um, I, I don't think we have any right to demand of God mm-hmm. that we have all of our questions answered. I think that's a rather haughty an arrogant stance towards God. Yeah. However, I do believe we can have answers to the important questions. Mm-hmm. I think we can know with confidence that there is a God and God has revealed himself to us through Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the thing. If I know those two things, I can live with some ambiguity mm-hmm. on these lesser mm-hmm. questions. I love that. I love if, that. If those, if, if, those two, if those two things are true, if there is a God, and, and he is revealed to us through Jesus of Nazareth, his son. If those two things are true, Christianity is true. Mm. Everything else is working out the details. William mm. Lynn Craig says this, and I think he's right. 
If I know those two things are true, I have everything I need to trust in God to take care of me. So mm. even if I have doubts about other things, if those things are true, my faith is secure. Mm. What would you say to wrap up here to a pastor who is going through doubts? And this is a, a crisis of faith for them. They perhaps don't have the courage to share that with anybody. What would you say to encourage them right now? Well, I would encourage them by saying that my crisis of faith was actually in the long haul beneficial to my faith. I, I, prior to my crisis of faith, I would describe myself as a fairly shallow Christian, a fairly mm. shallow mm. Um, believer. Um, I would even say in the region of the United States where I come from, where um, where uh, being a member of a church, being a part of a church still has some cultural cachet. I was probably even partially motivated by cultural pressures mm. uh, to, to, to be in the church. Um, and I would say in many ways, my faith was very, very shallow. Mm. And I tend to think, Mitch, that had I not had this crisis of faith, I think I would have washed out of ministry mm. because um, I, I think God really used this crisis of faith to confirm my call to ministry. What I had learned wow. in my crisis of faith was so powerful that I knew that I had to spend the rest of my life sharing it with others. And so I guess I would just encourage pastors who maybe are struggling with a crisis of faith or, or any believer for that matter who's struggling um, in their faith, I, I would just encourage them, don't be complacent, start searching. Mm. Um, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. You know, the scriptures tell us in James that any of, if any of us lack wisdom, just ask of God who gives to all people liberally. Um, I would encourage them to ask the hard questions, uh, do some in-depth research on the hard questions, and they may be surprised to find that at the end of their time of doubt, at the end of their crisis of faith, they may actually find their faith much deeper, mm -hmm. much healthier, and they may find they're even more motivated to do the work of the ministry. That's how it was for me. Yeah, and I think that's logical that that would be the the outcome, the birth of that. Uh, yeah, you even say it made you a better pastor, which makes a lot of sense because you 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 know what your people are likely struggling with, or a lot of people are, and uh, yeah. you're 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 addressing that not just from you know a theological angle, but from a very personal uh, story as well. Sure. Uh, well, you, I love how you've shared the gospel a uh, number of times through all of this, uh, and I love to be reminded of the gospel. How would you sum up the gospel in just a few sentences? And then I've got a final fun question to ask you. If I had to sum up the gospel in a couple of sentences, it would be this. We may be lost, but God has found us. Mm. I love it. I love it. We may have pushed against God and pushed him away from us. And remember, mm -hmm. God is the only thing that can truly fulfill us. Mm -hmm. We may be lost, but God has found us. And God has found us through the ministrations of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He has revealed himself through Jesus, that if we but recognize our need for him, if we but repent of our sins and trust in him, he will give us eternal life. He will give us that fulfillment 
that even if we can't name what we're looking for, he will give us that fulfillment that we so sorely need. That's the gospel. That. Yeah, thank We you may for be that. lost, but God has found us. Yeah, so concise. All right. If the roles were reversed here, what one question would you ask me, Julian? I would ask you this question, Mitch. You've asked me why I write. You've asked me what um, I why I do what I do. I'm curious. Why do you write? I know you're an author as well. Why do you write? I write because it is uh, it's a season in life thing. Uh, there's a lot in my life and ministry that's changed. My pace is a lot different than it was before. Uh, it's a creative outlet for me, but it's a it's an excellent way through a creative means to communicate a message. The last two novels, I just finished my my last novel, which is a sequel to my previous one. Uh, it's still being edited. Um, but I it's the first set that I did that's not overtly Christian. And, and it takes, I think, a lot more creativity to tell a story through allegory and kind of a parable. And that mm-hmm. has been fun for me. And I also put myself yeah. into the character a lot. It's, uh, in fact, the first novel I wrote, I did it to uh, to process some pain. And sure. it was it was very cathartic, very helpful. So that's why mm-hmm. I write. Cool. Yeah, Jillian, this has been wonderful. Uh, a very, very good interview. And I, I really appreciate your your time and your story. And uh, I'll make sure to have your contact information available here. So if anybody wants to. And again, I think what we're really urging here is if anyone's going through this, and particularly particularly if they're in ministry, is don't be alone. Here are two guys that we feel are safe sure. uh, to to talk with. So thank you so sure. much. Thank you for having me. And uh, if you'd like to read the book, you can get it um, through Amazon. You can get it also through my website, www.risensaviormen.org. And I would deeply appreciate it if you could just pick up the book. But thank you so much for uh, having me on the program. You are so welcome. And we'll put all that information on on my website as well. So thank Thank you, you, Julian. Take care. All right. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about today on Before You Quit or comments you want to make, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next time, stay encouraged and be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay encouraged.